All right, turn to Matthew 2, if you're not already there. Matthew chapter 2. Our text is verses 1 through 12. We just read the last part of that chapter. I want to read the first part, and then we'll pray. Matthew 2, verse 1. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. And when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he was inquiring of them where the Christ was to be born. And they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what has been written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah. For out of you shall come forth a leader who will shepherd my people, Israel. Then Herod secretly called the Magi and carefully determined from them the time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child, and when you have found him, report to me, so that I too may come and worship him. Now after hearing the king, they went their way. And behold, the star, which they had seen in the east, was going on before them, until it came and stood over the place where the child was born. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And after coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell to the ground and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they presented him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to return to Herod, the Magi departed for their own country by another way. Let's pray. Our Father in God, we have come now to sit under the authority of your word. We ask that you would grant us understanding. Keep us from self-imposed theological amnesia, which makes us dull and oftentimes hard of hearing. As we open up your word, I ask that your Holy Spirit would be among us here, abiding and abetting in grace. And Father, grant us joy, for we know that that is our strength. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Amen. Well, you may recall from a few weeks ago me mentioning that there are three very specific aspects to God's self-revelation. There are three specific aspects of how God has chosen to reveal himself to us, and I want to go over those because they're in the text here tonight. They are, one is the creation word. You may remember us talking about that. The creation word, when God spoke, let there be, he was in the act of creation revealing himself. So that's revelation by creation. The second is the inscripturated word, that is revelation by scripture. Why scripture is important, why it's authoritative, why it matters, and so forth. And the third is the incarnate word, that is, revelation by Christ. So we have the creation word, the inscripturated word, and the incarnate word. God spoke at creation. God has given us his word, which was given to us through the Holy Spirit, as the Holy Spirit guided and directed men to, to write what needed to be written and so forth. And then, of course, lastly, we have the incarnate word, that is, Jesus himself, that is, Christmas, the story of Christmas. So in an age of epistemological and metaphysical pluralism, that's a Vantillian phrase, when men believe that knowledge sources, where we know things, where we get those information, get that information, um, when, when men believe that knowledge sources and thus our being sources, who we are as people, how we exist, when people believe that anything but God in creation, they believe in anything but God and his authority, they'll, they're willing to throw their lives on the line for anything and anyone but God, 
And when men reject the absolute nature and being of God, and then, of course, they substitute their own equal ultimacy. They think they're the ones that are in charge and they're the, they're the point of, of, of consideration and integration of all things. When we have that going on, we must vehemently insist upon the verbal, propositional revelation of God in creation, Scripture, and Christ. So, <laughs> that's all a lot of ways to say, everybody out there is confused, so we need to stick to these things. <laughs> we need to stick to the creation word, the uh, word of God as Scripture reveals it, and of course, who Jesus is. So sinful men will always do everything within their power to reduce the absoluteness of God, and then they will elevate the mind of men. So everything you see going on in the world right now, it's like everybody's losing their mind, right? It seems like all of that is is a reducing or a reduction of the absoluteness of God and an elevation of the mind of man. So that's what's going on underneath all of it. And of course, the question is, what does this look like? For starters, it looks like men, or mankind, we should say, questioning the validity of God's self-revelation, questioning the validity of God's self-revelation. Instead of a creation word, it becomes an evolutionary word, right? That's the, the irony of all of it. If we're supposed to be just evolved, advanced apes, then why should I care what other advanced apes Think, why does it matter what they say? If that's their worldview, why am I supposed to have a vaccine passport when you're just spouting off because you're just an ape that just happened to be director of NIH, you know? So why do I care what you think if we're just apes? So we should push that antithesis. We should make that known and we should be fine with proclaiming those sorts of things. So instead of the creation word, we have people elevating the evolutionary word. Instead of the inscripturated word, the word of God that we find here, it becomes the canonization of the words of men. Suddenly, politicians and what they say matters more than anything. That's gospel truth. What men say becomes elevated rather than what God says in his word. And instead of the incarnate word, Jesus Christ, it becomes this transcendental skepticism. So... No way could God ever take on human flesh. That's just impossible. So we just have to be skeptical about, skeptical about everything. And that, of course, goes hand in hand with evolution. Lamentably, the reason men will always try to usurp these three aspects of our existence is because the revelation of God in the world permeates the entire existence of man. All right. God is there. He is not silent. And God will not leave you alone. Uh, as Kuiper famously said, every square inch is, uh, there's not a square inch of this world that Christ doesn't cry out, mine. It's, it's all his. So God's in everything, not in a weird pantheistic sense, like God hangs out in the trees, so go hug a tree. No, it's God is in everything, meaning that all of our existence is predicated upon his existence. Now, isn't that the true message of Christmas anyway, that God won't leave us alone in our sin? That's what Christmas is about. God won't leave you alone in your sin. He's come to rough you up, as it were, to dislodge the idols, to pull you out of the miry clay. That's what Christmas is. And this is why, for example, Van Til said that neutrality is based upon negation. And I want to explain that. Neutrality is this idea that there are places in the world where God doesn't have anything to say. 
So the political realm, for example, that's just neutral. Men just have to figure that out. It's not like God has said how we should do this. But neutrality is based upon negation. Neutrality, that's the pretext of all fallen creatures. Neutrality is, by definition, negation in that it assumes that God has not spoken or revealed himself to the world in three ways. Clearly, thoroughly, and existentially. So, sort of, let me kind of rephrase that so it's clear. Neutrality, that's the default assumption, right? That we think that there are areas of life that are just, God has nothing to say, we just have to figure it out. We believe that there are things that are neutral. Politics, again, being probably the foremost issue of the day. But neutrality is actually negation. If you try to postulate that there are things in this world that God hasn't said, that he's authoritative over it. You're trying to call those things morally neutral, ethically neutral, whatever those are. You are actually negating God. Neutrality is a negation of his authority. You are trying to usurp it. You are trying to cast it aside and so forth. And, and what you're doing in that moment, and again, this goes back to Adam and Eve, but what you're doing in that moment is saying that God hasn't revealed himself clearly, thoroughly, and existentially. I want to explain those things. Those three words I chose carefully for a reason. Repeatedly in the Bible, the Bible insists all over the place that God has revealed himself in creation clearly. The creation word is a revelation that is clear. That's Romans chapter 1, verse 20. These things, these invisible attributes, you look around the world, you see the stars, you see the trees, the mountains, the beauty of God's creation. It is clear. It is clear that God made it. And the only reason people say it's not clear is because they're suppressing the truth. So that's the creation word is clear. But the Bible also shows us that God has revealed himself in verbal propositional form through the Holy Scriptures. That's the inscripturated word. And he's done so thoroughly. In creation, he's revealed himself clearly, the Bible says, but also According to 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is God-breathed and it's profitable for everything. It's to equip all of us for all of life. So he's revealed himself in his inscripturated word, the word of God, the Bible you have in your lap, and he's done so thoroughly. It applies to everything. It's thorough. And then lastly, and by the way, let me say one more thing on that. God has given us an authoritative revelation that reaches all men in all places in all times, and it is an objective testimony to the authority of God and his will for the world. That's what the Bible is. So the Bible speaks to all of life. It does so thoroughly and unquestionably. So thirdly, God has revealed himself in the incarnate word, the Son of God, the Son of God who became the Son of Man, conceived by the Holy Spirit, born to the Virgin Mary, and he did so by taking on human flesh existentially. And what I mean is not existentialism, which is a pagan construct of humanism, but existential meaning the nature of being, who we are, what makes us us. So God took on flesh to show us what man is supposed to be as an image bearer. So the creation word, he's revealed himself clearly. The inscripturated word, he has revealed himself thoroughly. 
And the incarnate word, Jesus Christ, becoming a man, taking on human flesh, he has revealed himself existentially, meaning that's what a man is supposed to be. That's what a human being made in the image of God is supposed to be like Jesus. That's the being of who we are. Now you might say, what in the world does this have to do with Christmas and the topic of joy? Well, it has everything to do with it. Those three aspects of God's self-revelation are actually found in this passage, and it's beautiful how they connect together, frankly. The story of Herod, the Magi, and the toddler Jesus here in these 12 verses gives us a hint at all of those three categories, creation, scripture, incarnate word. Now follow the train of thought here. The star, which was a miraculous revelation of creation, led the Magi to the inscripturated word. They had to find the location of the Messiah's birthplace, you recall, because no one knew, but they had to go to the word of God to figure out where that was going to be. They looked to the Hebrew scriptures. They found Micah chapter 5, verse 2, and ah, Bethlehem, that's right. Which three brought them to Bethlehem where they saw the Christ child, the incarnate word. It's all here. The creation word, God revealed himself in this miraculous star, I don't think it was like Jupiter and Saturn lining up. It wasn't Halley's Comet. That happened before this. I believe this to be a a unique one-off event where the star appeared to do a certain thing in creation, led them to the scriptures, to the scriptures that led them to the incarnate word. Creation word, inscripturated word, and the incarnate word, all here in this text. As one writer put it, the star brings us to Jerusalem, only scripture brings us to Bethlehem. Creation can bring us to the church. The church brings us through the authority of Scripture to the Christ. So God's revelation in the creation word raises questions. It raises questions within us as we look around and experience what it is we experience in this earth. And then it sets us on a path towards discovery. Well, God's revelation in the inscripturated word answers those questions, apprehending our thirst for resolution. We all want answers. The scripture gives us the answers. And then finally, God's revelation in the incarnate word fulfills all of our yearnings, satisfies all of our cravings, and fills all emptiness, which is all to say that this passage draws a sharp distinction between darkness and light, between despair and joy, between murder and worship, between rebellion and humility, and between mercy and judgment. All of those themes are here in this 12 verses. See, Christmas pulls together the mess of humanity and it puts grace on vivid display for all the world to see. But what will we do with that grace? The gospel tells us, the gospel itself we know is a terror to the proud. It's a terror to the proud, to the powerful, to the elite all because they conspire against the Lord and they reject these aforementioned revelations. But to the lowly, the meek, the humble, the gospel brings comfort. And more importantly, most importantly, it brings everlasting joy. So, let's look at our passage. Verse 1. In verse 1, we learn that Jesus is already born in Bethlehem in Judea. He is no longer an infant at this point. He is now a toddler under the age of two. And immediately we are introduced to our antagonist, Herod the king. Herod the king. Now, Herod died in 4 BC. 
So Jesus, yes, was born in about 7 or 6 B.C. And you might be thinking, well, B.C. means before Christ, in A.D., year of our Lord, after Christ. So how is it that Jesus was born before Christ, <laughs> B.C.? Well, we have a calendar problem in history, and that's okay. <laughs> but Herod died in 4 B.C., so Jesus was probably born around 7 or 6-ish. Now, note that Matthew calls him Herod the king. He uses this phrase repeatedly. He's Herod the king. And we're going to come back to that shortly. Just file that away for a moment. We also see that the Magi from the east, which is probably modern-day Iraq, the region and peninsula of Arabia, they come and they arrived in Jerusalem. Advisors to the kings, the Magi, were astronomers and astrologers. Astronomers who would study the law of the stars and astrologers were people who thought, well, there's some sort of meaning in the stars that connects to us as humans to some degree, and they kind of blended those all together. And they, they took note that something curious was going on in the heavens. Something unique was transpiring. They saw the star, something is up. And verse 2 informs us that they understood the star to be an, uh, a sign that another king of the Jews had been born. They're very clear about that. They, they, they know this is what it must mean. There is a king of the Jews who has been born. Now, Balaam's prophecy, all the way back in Numbers 24, 17, had predicted that a star would rise out of Jacob. So it's, it's likely that they would have known about this prophecy. They would have understand to some degree the Hebrew way of life and probably been familiar with some of the Hebrew scriptures. They're wise men. They're, they're the magi. Um, they're not, um, you know, <laughs> they're people who knew some things. So they came to worship him, the Bible says. That is, they, they came to, proskuneo is the Greek word, they came to bow down before him, to honor him, to pay, pay respect to him, to pay deference to the newborn king. So they came to, to genuinely, genuflect to him, to, to pay respect. Now the wise men, they proved themselves to be very wise, and the reason, of course, is ironic here in the text. Why are they wise? Well, they're seeking out the king of the world. That's wisdom. And by the way, um, we don't know that there were three of them. So the, the song, uh, We Three Kings, is kind of a fun song, and I enjoy it. It's a great Christmas song, but we don't really know that there were three of them. We usually traditionally just get that because there were three gifts. And it's quite possible that all, all of them had brought all of those gifts and it wasn't like one little thing of gold and one frankincense, one myrrh. Um, it, probably it was a lot of gold, a lot of frankincense, and a lot of myrrh. And it's also interesting that these are the only words that we know that they spoke. We don't have any record of them saying anything else. This is the only thing they said. They are intentionally mysterious. Because Matthew is building his gospel story to the climax of the cross when the nations gaze upon Christ and the ending of the story when the nations are then to be discipled. He's building his story from there. There's a hint of it here. Wow, the nations came to see the, the Christ. Well, now the Christ is going to send everybody to the nations. That's part of what Matthew's getting at. So the Gentiles, we know in the, in the first chapter, they showed up in the genealogy of Jesus. And now the Gentiles show up to see the child. And that's because the gospel is for the world. Look at verse 3. And when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. Now suddenly we have a problem. 
Jerusalem is up in arms because Herod is up in arms. Um, mostly because Herod is unstable, and if he's unstable, things here will be unstable. Sort of like if Herod's not well, the people aren't well. Now, rather than rejoicing that the Messiah King was born, they shared in Herod's obstreperous fit. He is paranoid. It's <laughs> the, the motivated foreigners from a distant land, they came to pay their respects. Which, again, foreshadows the universal lordship of the Messiah. But Herod the king, who's there and present, he is distraught. He is frenzied by this news. King Jesus is acknowledged by the Magi, but he is assailed by a paranoid megalomaniac. Herod the king is now Herod the panicked. Herod the king is now Herod the perturbed. He is rightfully unsettled because he will rightfully be dethroned. To the righteous, Jesus is peace and joy, but to the unrighteous, to the despot, he is trouble. Herod knows something's afoot. And may the gospel always be proclaimed in this manner. Now, curiously, Herod, let me tell you a little bit about Herod. He was racially Arab. He was religiously Jewish. He was culturally Greek. And politically, he was Roman. So he's a hot mess, you might think. Now, he gathers together an ad hoc committee to investigate the situation. Hold on. Magi are coming, saying there's a newborn king of the Jews. I'm the king of the Jews. This is a problem. We need to form a committee. Because, you know, always form a committee. That's how you get things done. <laughs> he wanted just enough religious insight from the scribes and the religious leaders to further his nefarious agenda, but not too much to bring him to conversion. Give me some scripture, but not enough to convict me. So in verse 5, the chief priests and the scribes, they answer the question by finding Micah 5.2, which locates the birth of the Messiah in Bethlehem of Judah. Now Herod, he hears the scriptures. They read this to him. He hears the scriptures. He would have known of the scriptures as an Edomite, a descendant of Esau. He would have known some of these things. But he hears the scriptures. He hears the gospel in its most basic embryonic form, and he's now at a crossroads. What will he do? Will he repent and believe? Will he actually worship and bow down to this newborn king? Or will he double down and reject him? Herod hears, but he cannot hear. Rather than worship the Christ, Herod has murder in his heart. And it's at this point in verse 7 that Herod, he secretly gathers the Magi, trying to figure out the timing of the whole ordeal. He's plotting, he's scheming. Presumably the star disappeared during this time. I'm of the opinion that that's what happened. The creation word had brought them as far as the inscripturated word. Only scripture can take you to the Messiah. In verse 8, Herod sent the Magi to Bethlehem, urging them to search for the child. And as Chrysostom points out, Herod couldn't bring himself to say, go and look for the king. Rather, he says to go and look for the child, the young innocent little child. Of course, we know that Herod lied about wanting to come and worship him. He had no intentions. Let me know where he's at. I'll come and I'll come and I'll bring better gifts. Yeah, you're a liar. And everybody knows it. He's too busy worshiping himself. How could he possibly worship the child king? Verse 9. After hearing the king, the magi left and the star reappears. Interestingly enough, 
This time it leads the way and it rests over Bethlehem. Now, again, I believe this was an obvious miracle and I don't believe it was some sort of weird star alignment um, nor a comment or a comment or anything like that. I think this is another aspect of God's miraculous intervention into the world. But in verse 10, we see that their response is rather immediate. What do they say in response to this? And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. They, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And we're going to come back to joy in a second. But the world has now come to the Christ. And how did the world respond? With joy. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. And the text is interesting because it's a somber thing. We don't have the singing angels, the halos, the glory of heaven shining down, which was the case, of course, with Gabriel. No, we have great joy and exceedingly awesome praise. Same thing the shepherds say, this good news of great joy has come. See, Herod didn't see what was going on, but the world did. The Magi represent the world. In verse 11, the Magi, they reached to the house, reached the house rather, and they saw the child with Mary and they worshiped the child, bowing down before him. FYI, they didn't worship Mary, mind you. They, the text says they worshiped the child, so Mary worship is off, off limits. The Popish, no, they like to worship their Mary. Exclusive reverence is only for the Messiah, not the mother of the Messiah. Now the Magi, who represent the Gentile world, they, the text says they open up their treasures, giving the child royal gifts, um, gold, which had significant monetary value, frankincense with its tremendous medicinal value, and myrrh, which is a fragrance, the Bible says, is fit for a king. So they're taking care of everything. Is it the economy of the house, the way the house smells, and the health of the house. All of it's there. Psalm 72, 15, Isaiah 60, verse 6, and Psalm 45, 8, they all mention these gifts. They are gifts for a king. We're supposed to read that and feel the weight of the fact that they really did believe this was the king. He was truly the king, and here are the gifts that are fit for a king. Jesus would be anointed with myrrh, if you recall, at his burial as well connecting point. Now, once the Magi worshiped the true king, Matthew stops calling Herod, Herod the king. I want you to note that in the text. Once this happens, Matthew stops referring to him as Herod the king. He has now been dethroned. He's no longer Herod the king. Once this moment takes place, when the, when the Magi, the Gentile world, bow before him in worship, he's no longer Herod the king. He's gone. He's been ousted by a child. He is just a man, and he is not a king. His lordship ends today. In verse 12, the Magi are warned in a dream not to return to Herod, and they went home another way. Now, these were smart men. That's why we call them wise men. They were smart men who probably saw through the cunning deception of Herod. They knew something was wrong. And, of course, God validates that and says you need to go a different way. And I, Now, I don't want to make too much of this, but I think that Matthew's dropping us a hint. Proverbs says in Proverbs 14, 12, there's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is death. The Magi, having encountered the true king, must go another way. 
They must not walk in the way of Herod and thus walk in Herod's ways. They, I, think, I think what Matthew's saying is their experience with the Most High God was a vertical en- encounter. I mean, you, you bow down before this two-year-old. And the two-year-old's not arrogant about it. Because what two-year-old wouldn't appreciate the veneration of his parents and people? They had this vertical encounter with God. And then they leave changed. They go another way. They live differently. That's the horizontal encounter. So, how might we apply this passage? The birth of Jesus is a political event, but the birth of Jesus is political dynamite. It's political dynamite. In reality, Christmas is a powder keg ready to explode. As the great gift giver, God sent us a ruler. He gave us a child upon whose shoulders the burden of the kingdom would rest. And it is interesting, is it not, that Isaiah 9 tells us that the increase of his government and of peace would know no end. If the authority of Christ and the extent of his jurisdiction in history is ever increasing, ever growing, constantly progressing, not regressing, then it stands to reason that the authority and jurisdiction of Satan, sin, and death is commensurately decreasing. If Christ's authority is ever increasing, what else is decreasing? The authority of Satan, sin, and death. The authority of pagan men and humanist men. His his government is increasing. Theirs is decreasing. That's how this formula works. What goes up must come down, and what comes down from heaven must go up to the throne. The true king of the Jews has come, which means that the old king of the Jews must go. See, the birth of Jesus put Herod in a frenzy. Sinners with God complexes are always frenzied by Christ. Herod tried to ingratiate the Magi to cajole them into spilling the beans as to the location of the child prince. He too would come and worship, he says. He too would come and he would bring gifts. See, power does not like to relinquish itself, or I should say worldly power does not like to relinquish itself. Paranoia will always lead to scheming and scheming to death. Herod had always lived this way as it is. The Sanhedrin didn't like him. His own family couldn't stand him. By the way, he had killed three of his own sons. This was a wicked, wicked man. And he would, in the next section we read earlier, go on to slaughter the innocents, male children in the, in the area, two years old and under. And it was a bloodbath that would have made Planned Parenthood super proud. Herod is a villain. Herod is a villain. And if we're honest, apart from grace, so are we. Herod is us. Raw, unsanctified human nature gazes upon Christ with contempt. This is because raw, unsanctified human, humans desire lordship. And if Jesus is Lord, guess what? We are not. But isn't that what the gospel is supposed to do? Dislodge our idols and smash them on the ground so we can see how powerless they are. Displace all of our ungodly affections and burn them with fire. We too can be pernicious fools. We too can look upon the scriptures and be unimpressed. Apart from Christ, we are rebels, suppressors of truth, and resistors of righteousness. Apart from Christ, we are Herod. 
Yet there is a dash of hope for us here, a foreshadowing of great things. There is healing. There is victory. There is good news. There is God at work despite all appearances. There are two types of people illustrated by Herod and the Magi. First, sinful men, even when confronted by the reality of the creation word, inscripturated word, and incarnate word, will always come to Christ with murder in their hearts. It's one of the most mind-numbing experiences in an abortion clinic, talking to a death score. There's so much murder in the heart. So much. That's what sinful men do. That's what sinners do to righteousness. Sinners do to righteousness. They annihilate it, or they at least try to. But we also have another aspect, one that is driven by the grace and mercy of God. There are those who, in God's sovereign and provenient grace, are led to the creation word. They're led to the inscripturated word, the incarnate word. They come by faith. Furthermore, to come by faith means to bring everything with you, to bring your sin, your, fail, your failures, your folly, your lusts, your undignified words, and so on. You bring it with you, and you leave it. We leave it at the cross. For the Magi, they brought their gifts. They brought gifts fit for a king. Whatever route you come to Christ, bring your gifts. Don't forget the gifts. And the reason we give gifts, even at Christmas time, is because we've been given the gift. So children, when you open your gifts... You have to stop and remember that the gift is there, and the only reason it is a gift is because Christ is your gift. Which is why I want to finish a little bit of our time talking about joy. The topic of joy. When the Magi saw the star, the Bible says they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. The star appears and the tyrant exited stage left. See, in Genesis 37, we learn that Joseph, the youngest son of Jacob, if you remember, he had a vision or a dream of 11 stars that were bowing down before him. The stars were his brothers. Not a great way in at the family dinner table. I had a dream. You all are supposed to worship me. Stars do and can in scripture represent people, as do trees, metaphorically speaking. Moreover, while I do believe this star was a miraculous luminary that guided the Magi, I do believe there is something symbolic behind it as well. That is, the star moved, we're told, until it stood over the place where the newborn king was. And the, the, what's the point of that? Well, I think that our lives never rest until they rest in the Lord. That's essentially Augustine. We mentioned that last week. Our hearts are restless until they rest in you. Our lives are never at peace. They're never joyful. They're never um, more gracious than they are unless we are rooted in, in him and we rest in him. They saw the star because of what it represented. What did they say it represented? The, the new king of the Jews, right? He was born. They, they understood something uh, miraculous was, was at stake, something joyful, something exciting, something worthy of bringing these wonderful gifts and treasures to. The, la the Magi were being led by God in creation. They were led to his scriptures. But guess what? They were led to joy incarnate. 
They were being led to the fountain of all joy, of all peace, of all glory. Creation points us to Scripture, and Scripture points us to to the Messiah. That is joy. And that joy, as told to us throughout the Old Testament, was to go forth into all the world, into all the nations. And he is the desire of all nations. Listen to Haggai chapter 2, verse 7. It says, And I will shake all the nations, and they will come with the desirable things of all nations, and I will fill this house with glory, says Yahweh of hosts. So what is what of joy? Well, in a very real sense, Christmas is a clarion call to embrace the light and everything that comes with the light. The Christmas story exemplifies what it means to find hope in suffering, to find joy in uncertainty, and peace in the midst of strife. But we have, we have to actually pursue those things. All right? It's not like this stuff just happens to you. Joy is a fruit of the Spirit, which means that we cannot be passive in our Christianity, but must instead be active, active in our lives, putting to death the deeds of the flesh, active in cultivating the fruit of the Spirit. Joy, for example, is is not flighty, it's not airy, it's not looking at your situation and trying to transcend it as though you were following the ways of Buddha. That's not what joy is. Joy is tough. Joy is resilient. Joy has a spine, and yet joy is easily derailed by sin and temptation. You want to derail joy in your life? Give yourself to sin. Give yourself to temptation. It can be derailed by not having good theology, where suddenly your world is torn apart because something may have happened. And you act like God isn't sovereign over it. Joy can be derailed by not having the right priorities in place. Do people think you're a joyful person? Or do they think you're a curmudgeon who stubs his toe too often and is mad about it? See, joy can be taken from you when you have murder in your heart like Herod. Or when you have gossip on your lips. Or when you have an idol that's consuming your mind joy disappears when you reject the creation word the inscripturated word and the incarnate word and a definition is ordered this is my own definition so it you know you can quibble with me later if you think it's wrong but joy is an unshakable pleasure and trust in the providence of god that can only be experienced by humility and faith i'll say it again joy is an unshakable pleasure and trust in the providence of God, providence meaning God meticulously guides all things in the earth. It's not like God just sort of spun the wheel and decided, all right, I'm out of here. No, it's an unshakable pleasure and trust in the providence of God that can only be experienced by humility and faith. Joy is not a Buddhist transcendental experience where you simply rise above your current problems and circumstances You've maybe have heard that before. You've got to rise above your problems. No, you need to stare your problem in the face with the sovereignty of God and be unshakable and unmovable because you have faith and trust in his providence. And there's pleasure in that. Joy is not nirvana, nor is it the emptying of one's own mind. Joy is this deep thrill realization that in the midst of your problems, the Holy Spirit is with you. In Matthew 1, he is Emmanuel. Um, literally in Hebrew, Emmanuel means with us God. 
But in, in, in Matthew 2, he is Emmanuel Adam. He is with us man. Because he's a true man. Jesus is God. Jesus is man. And he is with us. Talk about joy. Finally, a perfect man to come and rescue us. To help change us and sanctify us towards holiness. See, Christianity is not a grin and bear religion. It's not a grin and bear religion. We don't just grin and bear everything because, well, stuff just happens. We prop up this idol called fate. It just happens. And something, sometimes it, it hits the fans, so we just have to deal. It's a mess. It's messy. Just grin and bear it. No, that's not what Christianity is. There are times when you have to grind, and grinding requires a little bit of grin and sometimes a whole lot of bearing. But the Christian is the one who can actually grin and bear because he possesses Christ in infinite treasure. Why did the Magi open up their treasures and give them to the child? Because as image bearers called by God to the task of dominion, we're supposed to open up the earth and worship God with what we find. That's why. That's what infinite treasure, placed in the heart of man, does. It gives us joy. It gives us an unshakable, undiluted, 100-proof joy. The Magi were joyful, and the nations will be glad too because Jesus Christ is the ruler of all. We don't hold our crowns with inflammatory rage like Herod. We humbly cast them down at the Messiah's feet. It's a beautiful picture from the book of Revelation. The, cast, the band Casting Crowns got their name from that. We cast our crowns at his feet and it's been noted throughout history. I think Augustine was one of the first to say this, but he said it's wonderful because God crowns his own gifts. He gave it to us. It's all his. So we don't act like Herod with rage in our heart. We act like the Magi with praise and joy in our hearts. So you want joy in your life, Christian? Then empty your selfishness like Christ, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your creation word, your inscripturated word, and we especially thank you for the incarnate word that is your son. Lord, we are six days from, from Christmas Day, and sometimes it's uh, difficult for some people because of the loss of loved ones and so forth, but we also know that it is, it's full of joy and excitement. And there's a reason for it, that being the greatest gift ever given your son. Father, help us to, to have that joy, an unshakable pleasure and trust in the providence of, of God and your providence over our lives, Lord. So whatever we face, whatever we have to endure, we endure with your glory on our lips and in our minds. So we pray your blessing now. As your word has been preached, Father, may your spirit stir us. In Christ's name, amen.